Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Floor 9. I am your host, Scott Elcherson. Adam, my co-host, is here with me. And on this week's main conversation, we are speaking with Jing Gao, the founder and CEO of Flyby Jing, for a conversation on the future of D2C brands. Before we start this week's show, I just want to take a moment to remind everybody to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Thank you to everybody that has already given us a review. We greatly appreciate it. Um, so big thumbs up there. Uh, and if you're still debating whether or not you should give us a review, again, it only takes five minutes. Uh, we greatly appreciate it as it really does help grow the show uh, and get more listeners and, again, helps us get it ranked on the Apple Podcast charts. Uh, so thank you in advance uh, for everyone that is going to go and leave us a review. And with that, um, Adam... Let's dive into the news this week. Are you ready? I'm always ready to talk about the news. Fantastic. Well, let's just dive straight into it. So first up, uh, we have something from Google here. Google Maps is launching a new community feed in their Explore tab. Uh, And so basically what this feed does is it will allow users to get updates from businesses or recommendations from trusted local sources. So again, we're starting to see Google really to put this social-esque feed into their Google Maps feature as a way to you know bring users to Maps and kind of lock them into their Google Maps product. Yeah, we've been talking about this for a while, um, that Google is basically turning Maps into a feed of content from local businesses that looks a lot like your Facebook news feed, but without your friends, just with businesses that you follow and <laughs> focused on your local area as makes sense for for something inside a map. Um, and this makes a lot of sense for Google. Um, as of, you know, the big shift here is you, as a user, you used to have to you know, tap on, you know, a restaurant or whatever and click follow um, to get their updates. And what's changing here is the the feed is getting a little more prominent in the app. And it's also now they're going to start inserting algorithmically uh, info from from businesses that you're not following, which I think makes a lot of sense because I don't think a lot of users were actually following businesses. So this is a move to an algorithmic feed, which I think is smart. I'm going to say that by the end of next year, we will start to see paid placement inside this feed, that it is gearing mm-hmm. up to be monetized. Um, and uh, I think that that's interesting. I, I, as a user, I, I have mixed feelings about it. <laughs> From a business <laughs> perspective, I think it's super interesting to see Google building these tools that you know give them access to different kinds of businesses that give them uh, placements that look like Facebook's newsfeed, but in something that's not Facebook, basically. Yeah. And I I feel like this would be like one of the first times we've really seen a place where it's more curated for businesses only. Yeah. It solves a lot of the problems that we're having with Facebook uh, as of recent. So uh, and right. that the users are having, that businesses are having, a lot of those brand mm-hmm. safety issues are just non-issues if it's all professional content. Right. So yeah, so that's an update from Google. Uh, more to come on that, and we'll update everybody uh, once it officially rolls out. Um, but next up, we had a recent Fortnite event. It was the Galactus event, and it was Fortnite's biggest virtual event yet, with 15.3 million concurrent players, uh, Fortnite announced in a tweet. Um, so that's pretty incredible. They These events keep getting bigger and bigger. First, it was Travis Scott. Uh, now we have this massive Marvel event. Um What's next, Adam? I don't know. can't they not do? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, unlike some of the concerts that they're doing, this Galactus event was a pure purely focused on gameplay, um, similar to how they end or begin uh, other seasons. The Travis Scott event in total, I think, reached 45 or 50 million people, but that's because it was replayed several times. Um, this was a one-time shot because it was it was affecting gameplay and, and ending the season. Um, and uh, so, you know, for, for this is a record for concurrent players uh, for an event. Um, and the other interesting thing is that... Um, 
just the, the the programming of this. This was the end of a season that was um, focused on Marvel. Uh, Galactus is not uh, a household name. Uh, he's a character from the comics. Oh, is he, is he not? <laughs> he is not. Well, maybe for some households he is. Uh, but <laughs> he uh, he is a character from the comics who has not yet made the leap to the MCU, to the movies and, and soon-to-be TV shows. So, you know, there's a little, which I think is interesting. It's a way to introduce him, uh, make him a little more prominent for, for people. And I think the big question is... Does this mean that Galactus is going to show up in the MCU at some point soon? Maybe, maybe he was supposed to be in something that was supposed to be coming out right now, or already have has been out, but it has not been released yet because of COVID. Um, you know, it's, I think that would make sense from a content strategy. We don't know the answer to that. We'll see. I guess as uh, things like WandaVision and Black Black Widow that should have been out by now start to start to come out. So regardless of what happens with Galactus uh, in the MCU, um, that's the end of a season. The new season is beginning, um, which does not have the Marvel focus. But uh, with another Disney property, The Mandalorian is now going to be a playable character in Fortnite, uh, as well as Kratos from the God of War series of video games, uh, which is interesting because um, they're developing this um, metaverse platform that is really designed to subsume all of the different intellectual property, which uh, I think is is interesting. And I think it, it opens a lot of opportunity for um, very modern ways to think about intellectual property interacting with each other. Yeah, absolutely. In other live event news, Dua Lipa's recent Studio 2054 virtual performance has broken online live streaming records with over 5 million views. Yeah, I think it's important to note this was a ticketed event. So it, I think mm-hmm. it would have been much higher than $5 million if it were not. Um, it was $12. Uh, you can still watch it if you're curious uh, uh, for uh, $10 uh, on demand. Um, I think for just for another week, which is confusing. Like, I don't know why you, you want to limit that necessarily. Because I think despite the fact that this was monetized and hope, mm-hmm. you know was presumably profitable, uh, I think it's it's really about sustaining interest towards a tour when things are, are, are open again, um, right. which I think is um, sort of the direction I think where we will see virtual events continue when, once things are open again, I think they will be sort of lead generation and demand generation for physical events. And I think that will be a little bit of a release valve where some artists might opt to go to fewer stops on their tour to tour less um, and to reach fans in, in more places uh, online. Now that we, sort of the, the, the stack of tools is, is ready for that. Yeah, absolutely. Operationally, they would save money, you know, depending yeah. on, on, on where they go, they could charge higher ticket prices. Uh, cause it'd be more dedicated fans that actually want to go in person. If exactly. They, you know, didn't want to just, you know, do like the free trial and test it out. So, um, to me, it seems like it's all, it's all a benefit to, you know, this new funnel, like you said, of, uh, how people are going to kind of vet and go to concerts. Uh, And last up here, our last bit of news is from Discovery. Discovery is launching its streaming service. One more to the fold here. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be called Discovery Plus. It's launching on January 4th in 2021. And the service is going to launch at $4.99 per month for an ad-supported tier and $6.99 per month for an ad-free tier. Welcome to the party. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, this has been, I think, I think this is the last shoe to drop uh well that's not true we're gonna get the the Ooh. relaunch of of cbs all access is paramount plus mm. that will be the last shoe to drop <laughs> in the uh the current uh front of the streaming wars um but 
I think that this is super interesting strategically, um, not as much for what's happening in the U.S. because I think that that's all well and good, and I think it's mm-hmm. you know that there will be a, a decent sized audience there um, who want to pay five dollars a month to watch House Hunters for sure. Um, but I think if you look at the the rollout strategy, they're actually going global for some definition of global. We don't know, I think, exactly which countries, but they are rolling out globally. Um, on day one, uh, which is something that we've seen HBO Max and Peacock uh, struggle with, uh, be for mm-hmm. licensing reasons. But but Discovery waited a little longer, got their their ducks in a row, um, and they're going global on day one, which I think gives them an advantage in other markets that may seem may not be as that, that will be bigger than it is here in the U.S. Um, they've mm-hmm. also secured the streaming rights for the Olympics in Europe, uh, which I think oh. is going to be huge for them. The Olympics as you may remember, was supposed to be part of Peacock's launch this summer here in the U.S. Um, obviously, Peacock will still carry them next summer here, uh, but Discovery will have them in Europe. So I, I, I think that we're actually going to see this interesting dynamic where, where Discovery might have a bigger – or certainly will have a bigger footprint than Peacock and HBO Max in Europe next mm-hmm. year. Um, and uh, you know, I think they will – it, it'll be interesting to see this American company have more – perhaps a larger weight in another part of the world um, than they Mm -hmm. do in the U S initially. And, you know, over time, I think we'll see that shake out. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw uh, this because discovery's content is very focused on unscripted um, reality shows and, and, and docs and and animals animals. and nature (laughs) through crime. (laughs) Yeah. Like I wouldn't be surprised if we saw this bundled up with something that is more focused on scripted content in the long Mm run. Um, Maybe something like an HBO Max, it would make sense for them yep. to like make a deal um, where they're cross promoting. Uh, you know, I just pure speculation. Um, but uh, as a you know, right out of the gate, they're going to have a, a distribution deal with Verizon that gives Verizon customers free access to Discovery Plus, uh, similar to what Disney did. Um, so you know, I think there's uh, you know, it's 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 another ad supported OTT on demand platform, um, and uh, I think. You know, there will be certainly a really good global audience at launch. And I think um, we'll see what the U.S. audience looks like. In the same vein of streaming uh, coming from Hulu, Hulu's watch party feature is now available to all subscribers. Uh, So this is the feature that allows you to watch a show on Hulu. Uh, with up to seven different friends or family uh, all together in the same environment uh, to kind of bring that uh, full circle viewing experience digitally uh, to the Hulu platform. So that's super exciting. Uh, Definitely going to be testing out this weekend as there's some great shows on Hulu that I want to be watching. So shout out to Hulu. Well, that is going to wrap up the news for this week. And we're going to transition now into the main conversation of this week's episode, where we'll be speaking with Jing Gao, the CEO and founder of Flyby Jing. Listeners, welcome to this week's main conversation. This week, we, we have with us Jing Gao, the CEO of Flyby Jing, a D2C brand that sells Szechuan hot sauces. Uh, we'll be talking about how um, D2C brands are really changing, uh, and especially throughout the period of these past eight months, um, you know, what the future of D2C brands will look like. Uh, and so without further ado, I would like to welcome Jing Gao to Floor 9. So welcome. Thank you for having me. 
Oh, we're so excited to have you. And I kind of give our listeners a little bit of background on your product and what it is. But how about you kind of give us your the full story of uh, Flybiking and what it is and how it all came to be? Well, thank you, first of all. And uh, so my name is Jing, and I am the founder of Flybiking. So it started mm-hmm. out as a underground supper club and a pop up dining concept. And I took the road. Um, I cooked for you know thousands of people across you know as far away as New Zealand to wow. Europe. Um, Japan and New York and LA and everywhere I went, I carried suitcases of ingredients with me because I knew that these ingredients were not available outside of China. And these were ingredients that I had spent years sourcing um, and developing relationships with, you know, farmers and suppliers. So I knew these were the best in the world, and I also knew that they had never been exported before. So, um, you know, with all of these dinners, I had firsthand feedback, you know, immediate feedback from people when their faces would light up. And, you know, you could tell that uh, great flavor is universal, um, but they just didn't have access to to these flavors, right. And so there was definitely a disconnect there. And um, in 2018, I actually attended Expo West for the first time, which is the largest natural foods expo in probably in the world. And I was just kind of checking out what the, you know, natural food scene is like in the US and walked around the show for several days, you know, sampling hundreds, if not thousands of stalls. And at the end of it, I remember just reflecting that there were practically no Asian food brands. Um, And, uh, you know, not only that, the entire show was quite devoid of diversity. Um, Just the people, you know, walking the halls who are the gatekeepers, like the retailers and the buyers. There was a Mm -hmm. lot of, um, there was a lack of representation there from from different cultures. So, you know, it became apparent to me that there was a giant opportunity that was untapped Mm -hmm. and unmatched. And it's also just, as we all knew, like it wasn't reflective of the way America looks and and eats. And so that was kind of the impetus to um, bring what I was doing to a wider scale and in a CPG format. Um, So that led to our Kickstarter, which became the highest funded craft food project on Kickstarter. And that was for our Sichuan Chili Crisp, which is our first product. Now we've expanded the line. But um, yeah, so that kind of, you know, kicked everything off. And that was um, late 2018. And then I moved to LA to launch the business and we we launched D2C um, in the spring of 2019. Wow, that is an incredible journey uh, and, a, and a way to start a company. I don't think we have a better expert to be on the show this week to be talking about this, uh, this topic. And so with that, uh, I want to dive straight into, I guess, really, uh, you know, your perspective from these past eight months. What were some maybe strategies or approaches you took to this uh, pandemic that rolled out? Yeah, so at the beginning of the pandemic, we were just a just a year old. And, you know, since the beginning, um, this business has been bootstrapped. And, you know, we never raised outside funding. And, you know, we grew very organically as a result, we grew quickly, but organically. And, um, you know, we were always resource constrained. And so, you know, even at um, in April of this year, um, we didn't have any full time employees. Once we went into quarantine, um, everything changed for us. In the beginning, it was quite uncertain. We were, um, you know, I was very concerned about the xenophobia that was, you know, rising, the relations that were souring, and I had no idea what to expect. But, um, you know, we, we've always had a very strong customer base ever since even the Kickstarter days, and just people are, feel so connected to our brand. And, you know, 
the word of mouth is extremely strong. So I think we had been developing a lot of brand awareness in our first year. And so once people were forced to stay home and cook and have to figure out, you know, you know, easy, affordable, and, um, you know, direct kind of solutions to eating high quality food at home, that's when they started reaching for our products. And, um, and, you know, sales instantly started to increase, which was uh, really comforting and, and um, validating. But in uh, mid-April, we were featured in a gigantic kind of piece in the New York Times uh, Sunday magazine that where, you know, this managing editor, Sam Sifton, basically said that um, if you want your quarantine cooking to taste good, you got to get Fly by Jing. And I'd never experienced anything quite like that. Um, so, you know, that one month we we did more sales than we did in our entire first year. And uh, yeah, so, you know, since then, I'm, you know, happy that sales have actually sustained um, at those levels. and. Um, it just, yeah, so we, um, but with that, with that huge spike in demand, we faced a lot of constraints when, on the supply side. So um, we sold out of months and months of inventory overnight and we went into pre-order mode because, you know, for a small business like ours, like we need that incoming cash. Like we, we couldn't afford to not sell, but we communicated to our customers that, you know, we're working on getting replenishment ASAP. Luckily, at that time, China had already opened up again. And, um, you know, factories were going back to work. And I immediately tried to place another order. But there was a lot of resistance because they, um, they were so, you know, busy with their own catching up with their own orders. And um, so, you know, with a lot of kind of back and forth, they finally agreed to make the sauce for me, but not bottle it. So I had to figure out a whole new supply chain in the US in order for the sauces to be bottled. And so new labelers, new bot, new glass manufacturers, new everything, co-packers. And so set that up, uh, what felt like overnight. At the end of the day, they had to bottle 30,000 jars by hand um, here in California. So eventually, you know, we, we had a bunch of delays, but we were communicative of those delays with our customers and they were very appreciative. Um, a lot of them were surprised that a brand would uh, be so transparent and honest with them. Um, a lot of them wrote back, you know, super encouraging words of support. Um, and a lot of them said that our updates were the most thrilling things that they had read during <laughs> quarantine. So, um, so people... Been- yeah. <laughs> yeah. That that well that's fantastic. And I and I think that, you know, paints a really um, you know, unique picture for our DDC brand throughout all of this, right? Is that that Obviously, I think that traditional sense of D2C, right, is that you own that relationship with that consumer. Uh, it's a one-to-one conversation, and you're able to really have that back and forth. Uh, you know, to, to have a consumer tell you, you know, that your updates about your product and the shipment have been some of the most entertaining uh, things they've read through the pandemic. I mean, that's fantastic. You've, you, you've established a really great brand and a loyalty around that. Um, and so I want to kind of ask you as we kind of get deep into this conversation about, you know, so as a as a founder of a D2C brand and you, and you have this really good relationship with your consumers, um, do you think this concept of D2C is is shifting away from just being a a brand to being more of like a strategy? Because I, I think, again, what we think about D2C today is that, you know, 
D2C brands sell directly to their consumers. They have an excellent relationship with their consumers and they use that feedback loop to improve their products and essentially just become um, a strategic a strategic advantage. But in today's world, um, it seems like maybe the idea of D2C as its own category is shifting more towards a strategy. I would love to get your thoughts on that as somebody that's you know in it today, working on it um, day in, day out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's the most effective in building um, rapport and like a real mm-hmm. relationship between the brand and the customers. Um, I think a lot of, I still think that not a lot of brands um, have achieved that. And right. uh, even D2C brands, you know, I think there's, there, um, for us, like, because our brand is so personal, because mm-hmm. the product and our story is so personal to my story and my journey. Um, I think there's, that's like where D2C really makes sense for us. Um, we're literally like, we have people writing as love letters and, and vice versa, you know? And so <laughs> that's, that's kind of how deep it goes for us. And, um, and, and it absolutely is a part of our strategy because the word of mouth alone is mm-hmm. our biggest growth driver, our greatest sources of, um, traffic and conversion are actually direct and referrals um, and organic search. So we, we've uh, barely scratched the surface in terms of paid ads. Large companies are now also selling their products D2C, right? So it's yep. like less of um, a category, of, uh, just another channel. Um, right. but, but I think when a brand really does like takes advantage of that is, um, is when they can build that extremely deep relationship. And there's very few brands, I think, that have mm-hmm. achieved that. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you, you bring up an interesting point that um, saying that uh, you, like your brand was very resource constrained. And I think that's one thing that plays into this idea of, of, of D2C as like a go-to-market strategy in the sense that um, you're able to put something out there without a lot of resources, Right, you know, because you're selling directly to consumers, you know, maybe through a Shopify website, and they can handle all of your all of your like logistics. You can pretty much get it done with a small team, limited resources, and as a way of seeing if the product is going to find product market fit, if it's like a you know a good a good product. Whereas I think in the past, you know, it took a lot of resources to get a especially like a CPG product out into uh, the world because you had to establish you know you know big partnerships with those traditional channels, uh, and I think that's one of those things. I think we're starting to see change in this landscape uh, is that you know at once you know, D2C was disrupting all of those traditional channels, but now it's more of just like that first step that might lead, you know, a brand or a product into that larger funnel. I agree. And actually that was one of my, one of my questions is as you, you develop these amazing relationships with your, your consumers, of course, um, at some point there's going to be a natural probably wall there of how, how large you can grow that. Do you think that long-term you will need to spend more time and, and, and expand into wholesale in some way, shape or form to reach consumers who you might not be able to reach D to C? Yeah. Uh, a thousand percent. I think um, it's a, it's a great tactic for entering the market. As you said, it's low barriers, low, low resources required. And on that front, I would say even lower is, the you know doing the kickstarter right like i recommend all founders to do that before you go and build a a whole website and like you know do a whole huge um run with with a co-packer it really depends on what your goals are right like our goal has always been to create the first 
modern Chinese household name that represents high quality Chinese food. For that to happen, we need to be in everyone's homes the way that Heinz ketchup is and the way that sriracha is. So, you know, so we're going to do it. We're going to get there by, you know, being where people are. And um, we happened to start off with D2C, um, but we have already, you know, we're already in about 200 stores across the country, which are a bit more kind of boutique retailers that, um, you know, every, everything from like neighborhood goods to like pop-up grocery and like, you know, places like that, um, where it's, it's more of a marketing play for us to be visible in those stores. Um, but, you know, we've been growing so quickly and with so little resources that we haven't had the chance to um, expand beyond that. Um, so, so all of these stores have been inbound. Um, but we are now starting to talk to the natural channels like the Whole Foods and so on to um, go into those stores for next year. And um, I kind of, you know, and I always knew that, you know, in those two years, we probably wouldn't be ready yet. And so now we are. And so heading into our third year, that's what we are looking at. So, you know, natural channels at first, and then going into mass. Um, we don't want to go too wide too quickly, because I've seen brands do that and not, you know, not message it properly and kind of be, try to be uh, everything to everyone. And that never works. So we want to grow quickly, but we want to do it sustainably. Yeah. So, are you also looking at restaurant partnerships? Is that something that's also might happen down the road? Yeah, we have. We do work with some restaurants right now in a wholesale capacity. You're gonna have to pick your areas where you yep. want to focus on growing. And right now, I think um, natural grocery is is the next step. Um, eventually, it would be great to go into like hospitality. Um, you know, airlines, hotels, things like that. Um, as the product and the format changes as well. Um, but, you know, we're really focused on building a, uh, a platform as a brand, right? So this platform, you know, you can think of it as like, like a brand like Glossier, they have like a boy brow, which is like their top product, right? But they're known now by all of their customers to be the, the, the brand that comes out with good quality, affordable products. So for us, that's what we're aiming to be for quality Chinese food. And so, you know, as people associate which they already are associating with us with the highest quality Chinese food that you can get um, that allows us to that trust to um, come out with new products down the line. And uh, for, you know, if we were to do a frozen line, for example, then that would, you know, probably have to be in, in grocery stores. Um, and so it'll really, you know, depending on the product and, and the channels, we'll kind of grow that way. That's super interesting. While maybe that narrative for the past few years has was really focused on the, you know, the the benefit of selling direct and how that can help, you know, you know, inform product decisions and, you know, maybe even where to sell, those traditional retailers um still hold a lot of value to products and brands. And the DTC brands are kind of going up funnel and big CPG companies, you know, they're going down to uh, consumers. So it, it's a funnel that's working both ways. And maybe it's not necessarily a category, as we talked about, but more just like a larger strategy that um, more and more brands will, you know, be activating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely a limit to um, the number of ways that you can target customers online. Um, you know, you see a lot of brands tap out um, after a certain number of years um, and a certain number or amount of dollars spent right on ads. And um, so there's definitely a saturation point um, just because there's, you know, also limited 
areas where you can try to reach them, right? You've got Facebook, Instagram, Google. Um, but really, I think you just want to be where the customer is and make it as easy as possible for them. And, you know, the more you've got offline and online kind of playing off of each other and creating that bigger brand halo, the the more, you know, the, the further your brand's going to go, I think. I feel like that connection is what is is that is maybe like that second pillar that really makes a D2C brand a D2C brand, right? It's it's that story, it's that mission. Are you thinking of any other ways to kind of help expand and deliver this brand ethos to your customers and, and really, you know, get them involved in um the story and the product and the company? Uh yeah, for sure. Um so we are rolling out a, um, a loyalty program right oh, now very cool. that uh, will be quite, you know, uh, quite involved. There's a lot of ways that you can um, collect points mm-hmm. beyond purchasing on the site. And, um, you know, we want to always think about what's the extra value add that we can provide. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we haven't done a subscription so far because, um, because of that, because we really wanted to be thoughtful about how we did it. And um, so, you know, along with the subscription and like, you know, all the customers who have responded to us so far that they want to be um, kept in the loop, you know, mm-hmm. for future product development and stuff like that. Like we offer, um, we're, like we will be offering more deeper ways that you can engage with us, whether it's like testing products first or, um, you know, getting a uh, annual kind of care package from mm-hmm. that's like curated by me, you know, um, cool. that, uh, you know, is that, uh, is full of things that are my favorite things that you can't find anywhere, you know? That's super interesting. And like you mentioned, the brand is very personal to yourself. Uh, in a way, you've become this entrepreneur influencer, which is something that we see more common actually in the Chinese social commerce space versus what's happening now in the West. So do you think this is something or a way in which we see the DDC space might be evolving? It's starting to happen, right? Like you do see, you know, influencers on YouTube and, and IG start to come out with their products yep. and stuff. And, you know, Casey Neistat can sell, you know, a million dollars with the product in an hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And David Dobrik and, you know, all these people. So um, I definitely think that that's, that's a trend. And, and I, I know some companies that specifically help, you know, famous celebrities build brands, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, Everything from um, Tracy Ellis Ross's hair care brand to Kendall Jenner's toothpaste brand. Like these are, there's, there's, um, I think it's like a few companies that uh, have been behind all of these product launches that, that are, you know, specialists in branding and, and D2C and, and stuff like that. So um, yeah, that's definitely a possibility for the way that D2C is going. I mean, look at Kim Kardashian. Yeah. <laughs> like her brands are, are insane. And, you know, so. Yeah, that's a good point. But there is a bit of a difference here. You know, folks like Kim Kardashian um, and other big influencers, maybe like David Dobrik, uh, they're looking for ways to monetize their fame versus yourself where your story is the product and, and the brand. And when you market your brand, you're actually marketing your story and you have full control over your product. Uh, whereas a celebrity or influencer-driven product, you know, they're more likely looking to um, build a product that can actually extend their commercial ability. And they take more of an advisory role because, again, this product that they put out there you know, is an extension of their brand, but it isn't the brand. Yeah, I think it would be interesting to see. I, I can think of a few brands right now, like that where the founder's story is, you know, 
becoming a bigger part of the brand story, like Diaspora Co., which is a spice company, a fair trade spice company, House, um, you know, Helena and Woody from House. Um, yeah, and I think, um, I think, yeah, there's there's been a lot more talk about, you know, uh, authentic founder stories in, in brand building. And so we may see more of that um, emerging. Is that a challenge for, you know, like a P&G to kind of like develop that story? Because it seems like for them, as the, as they go down the funnel, they aren't really doing, you know, a D2C brand. They're becoming just online sales, right? It's like an online sales channel versus becoming that um, type of brand. You know, having worked there and knowing how the system works and how, you know, like uh, I I was a brand manager, but, you know, decisions that I make, you, you won't see come to fruition for years. Right. And uh, that's kind of just a function of the way that they work. It's their playbook and it's worked for them for 100 years. Um, and uh, but the thing is, like, you know, I think I think what sets apart the best D2C brands that I've seen is a really like the moat is really like a truly authentic founder story. Right. right? And like um, and uh, that's that you can't fabricate that, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, they could probably incubate that within, you know, within their organization, if they can figure out how to uh, allow autonomy, Um, you know, but, uh, but again, still, even in that model, they they have to start from the bottom up rather than, you know, I don't, I don't know if they can take like Tide detergent and like, (laughs) you know, do that from top down. But, um, but yeah, I think you're right. Like, Mm -hmm you know, then otherwise it becomes just an online sales channel, mm. which they are starting to do, you know, they're, I know that they're collaborating with like, you know, companies like, um, I don't know, like cloud kitchens and stuff, yeah. you know, to, to make these household items <clears throat> available uh, instantly. Um, so yeah, I think for them, it's just like a, an extra distribution channel. Um, but you know, if you're talking about like, I think like more and more consumers do value, um, you know, a real, a real purpose Mm -hmm. behind the companies that they support. Right. And, uh, that's, that's something that a company like PNG can't really fabricate, I think. But I was curious based on your history of working for a PNG and working in tech and, uh, you know, running a restaurant, like manufacturing and distributing CP and marketing CPG goods is obviously it's the marketing part is similar to PNG, but, um, the manufacturing and distribution, like how did you get up to speed about supply chain and just that whole process? Yeah. Um, with a lot of difficulty, (laughs) it was uh, painful. It was very painful. I actually have written a medium piece called what I learned from making hot sauce at scale. Um, that kind of detailed a lot of the learnings and the and the um, challenges. Um, I mean, I I think you know it's uh, you know there's there's consultants that you can consult with for stuff like that. Um, as a new founder of a brand these days, like I think that there's people that can help you at every step of the way. For me, when I started, um, you know, I didn't have resources for any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to figure it out on my own. And um, in my case, um, you know, I spent a year or two, like painfully searching for the right partners in China, um, learning a lot of lessons along the way. 
in, you know, the way that mass manufacturing of food works and the way that um, business doing business in China works and uh, how do you, you know, how global trade works and, and all of these things. I think, um, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely took ramp up time. And um, for my first large scale batch, um, you know, I needed something like Kickstarter to be able to help me do that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it really is just like, for me, it was just like knocking on every door and talking to every person um and uh and being told no literally a million times like like no we won't things your way because we're happy doing things our way you're demanding too much from us in terms of quality you're demanding too much from us in terms of the ingredients and you know and um but at the end of the day the reason why our product is singular in the market and why nothing tastes like it is because nothing else is made like it and i know this because I know how difficult it was to get to here. So, yeah. Oh, that's bold. That, that is um, quite the journey. But with that, I think we're going to wrap up this week's episode here of, of, of Floor 9. Jing, how can our listeners get in touch with you? And more importantly, where can they find the Fly by Jing product? Um, yeah, so um, I am at Jing Theory on Instagram. Um, at Jenny Gao on Twitter. I still haven't changed my Twitter <laughs> handle. Um, and uh, at Fly by Jing everywhere else. Um, and some of our cities, actually, the top cities, New York, Brooklyn, LA, SF, and Chicago, we are about to launch um, same day, um, if not two hour delivery. So very cool. That'll make last minute holiday shopping really easy hopefully fantastic well listeners with that that is going to end this week's episode of floor nine jen thank you so much for coming on uh floor nine this week we greatly appreciate it it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you talking about d to c your story and the fly by jing product so thank you very much thank you so much for having me thank you 